Amen. Happy Mother Day to you mothers. Mothers. You do a lot of the dirty work, and you get looked over a lot. I'm blessed to have a mother who is a godly mom, is a godly mom. She's still living. And it was always on Mother's Day that we could, she showed us how much she loved us because we would never have enough money to buy our nice things. So we'd make her cards and all those things. And you'd see them, she'd put them on a dresser and they were there for one month, two months, three months. That's how much it meant to her. And all my, bro- my brother and my two sisters, they could draw well. That's why I'm not a barber today. My dad is. I, I got none of my talents from my dad because he could draw. He was a master barber. And my mom would take all of her cards and put them inside of a closet on the door. And when we would go in there to get something, we would still see cards for when we were in third grade and fourth grade. And it, it was just amazing. So moms, y'all mean a lot to me. I was trying to give you guys, the ladies, matter of fact, two Mother's Day. Because yesterday, ever since uh, my aneurysm, I miss a day. No matter, I know it's seven days, is in a week, but I can never, every time Thursday comes around, I think it's Wednesday, so I never get caught up. So it was around 6.30, and I usually get up at 5.30 for Sunday, but I got up and took a shower and went to the closet to get my clothes out, and I said, Lydia, are you going to church today? And she said, no. So I was shocked. And then she says, today's Saturday. I had gotten up, rushed my, uh, text my message to Jordan, and I'm saying, you mean I have another day? Usually, um, I'm just catching up on everything on Saturday, preparing everything. But yesterday, I had caught up because I had already written it down because I thought it was Sunday. I'll be glad when I can make up that other day, but uh, it was a blessing yesterday. So I want to wish you moms uh, have a great Mother's Day. You, like I said, you are the forgotten person of the family, and you mean so much to us. But we're in the fourth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, moving right along. And Paul is getting down to he's really starting to not hold back anything. He's, he's told them he loves them. He, he's told them all these other things that the wisdom of God, uh, Paul birthed the church in 1 Corinthians. And today we're going to look at, have you ever seen believers act like unbelievers? That's probably never happened to you guys. But that's what Paul is going, going to get on them about. It probably happens too many times, and it's sad that happens because Jesus not only died for our salvation, we're headed for his kingdom, but there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ, power to live a holy life, a godly life, and that's basically what Paul is saying. Chapter 3, Paul is telling the Corinthians that he could not speak to them as spiritual uh, pneumatico, that means people of the spirit, because the Corinthians thought they lived in the spirit constantly. They had matured. They had arrived. And Paul says, but you're acting like you're carnal. 
You're acting like babes in Christ. The word is for, for carnal is sarkikos, and it means it emphasizes their humanness. They're walking in the flesh all the time. They're fleshly, and their behavior is really betraying them. And then I thought about that. I said, no, it's not betraying them. They're acting like who they are. They're, they're, they're walking in the flesh, and they're acting like they're in the flesh. So Paul is trying to move them, to move them from a fascination of Sophia. And remember, Sophia is the earthly religion of wisdom. And he's trying to get them to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's using a lot of metaphors and things like that. And he's also sharply rebuking them. And what he's saying is, remember one day, because the Corinthians has forgot, they've forgotten about this. He says, remember one day, you're going to have to present yourself to Jesus Christ, not to be judged. We, the salvation is a gift. If we ask the Lord and, and, he, and you truly mean it and you repent of your sins and he comes into your life, that's a free gift. But then you're down here maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and we should be living for Christ. And if we're not, Jesus holds us accountable for that. I've said it before. Jesus is not, he's not only good for salvation, but, he, but he's also powerful enough. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to change an unbeliever's life that he doesn't walk like he used to, that he doesn't do the things that he used to do, that he's kind and gentle and all of those things. It's the blood of Jesus who does all of that. He sanctifies us. So Paul is telling the church of Corinthians because they're bickering back and forth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollo, some of Cephas, I'm I'm of uh, other guys, but... He said, no, you're you're running after men. Run after Jesus Christ. Paul tells them, who then is Paul? Because he's trying to get them to understand their actions are carnal. You know you have a good friend when they can tell you, hey, you're messing up. You're not doing well. You're supposed to be doing this, but you're doing that. A good friend will tell you that. Just somebody who will hang along, just to hang along, they won't. They'll puff you up and all those things. But Paul loves this church of Corinth. And so he tells them, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one? The ability to believe in Jesus Christ comes from the Lord. Paul goes on to say, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase That's good and well, but he goes on and tells them, each one, after you have been born again, each one will receive his own reward when we get to heaven according to his own labor. Paul has given us a warning in chapter 3. He says, but be careful how you build on that foundation. The foundation stone is Jesus Christ. He says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, I like the song. If you know anything about me, I, I like country, I like hip-hop, I love all types of music. 
if it's good. When I became a believer, that kind of, I only listened to uh, worship music now because when I was listening to all that other music, I was usually high or drinking or something. So anytime I catch one of those songs, it takes me back to my old ways. And I've always liked the song, Stairway to Heaven. And I used to just listen to that song over and over again. But of course, that's false. There's no stairway to heaven. There's a bloodstained road that Jesus Christ made. And that's the only way to heaven. He says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation, Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. First Corinthians 3.21 told us, therefore, let no one boast in men because that's what the church of Corinth was doing. For all things, Paul says, are yours. So we come to chapter 4. The Corinthians has a theological misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the church should function. There's ways, there, there's, there's ways that has been marked out in, in, in the New Testament of how a church should go about its business, including the role of the teachers, of the pastors here. And we've addressed that. But still, it seems to me there's a thorn in Paul's crawl, so to speak. At the heart of much of, this, of the attitude of many towards Paul himself, they are not simply for Apollos or Peter, but they are decidedly anti-Paul. Paul has birthed this church, and they have a bone to pick with him in the sense that they are rejecting both his teaching and his authority. And this has brought Paul to this dilemma. Paul just can't put it aside. It keeps coming up, and he needs to say something. On the one hand, he must assert himself as the apostolic authority that he has of his apostleship. And it seems like they've forgotten that. And he has to correct them about the gospel. He has no problem doing that. The gospel was what birthed them. They came to faith by the gospel. On the other hand, he must reestablish all of that without. Now, this is the part we must learn. Without blunting the force of his argument he's going to present here, especially his adamance as to the servant and the apostle role, because that's what he's been carving out. Hey, you guys, I'm a servant. Truly, I'm a servant. But I'm not only a servant, Paul says. He says, I am an apostle. Paul already has, had people riding behind him. The Judaizers saying, no, Paul is, is uh, the least of the apostles if he's one. And to me, in my book, come the New Testament, there's nobody greater than Paul. But the Judaizers would always come behind him and say, no, Paul didn't see Jesus Christ. He's not a true apostle and all of those things. In some ways, this is Paul's finest hour when he wrote this. Above everything else, Paul is of Christ. He lives his life of Christ. He lives his life in Christ. That's his old concept. This means that he is thoroughly eschatological, Things that pertain to, pertains to the end times, that's what that word means. But he's not simply 
sitting around awaiting for the end times because for Paul, it means that the future, Christ's return and reign, has been determined by the past, his death and resurrection. And that certain future, guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, determines the present. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, that should seal everything, knowing that what else Jesus said is coming. It's on the way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was not a matter, it's not a matter of creed for Paul. It was the singular reality that sustained his entire existence. That's how Paul lived his life. But not his alone. By way of the resurrection, the eternal God has set the future in motion. I always kid with you guys, and I tell you about that Elton John song, The Circle of Life, but it's, that's not true. It goes from one point to another, and we're headed to the end. And what set that in motion is Jesus Christ resurrecting from the grave. There's a consequent judgment inevitable for all of us. It will happen to all of us. Therefore, Paul, it radicalized him. That's all he thought about. I'm in Christ. Christ has saved me. He has birthed me. And the life I live, I live for Christ. That was Paul's mindset. That was his heart set. That should be every believer's. Remember this, and it will help you walk better as a Christian. All merely human judgments, all human judgments, whether if you're in the cool group, you're in the best friends group, no matter how you walk down here and how the Lord has blessed you down here, keep this in your mind. All human judgments is nothing in light of the final judgment. And that's what kept Paul on his, that was what was on his mind constantly. He thought about one day he was going to meet the Lord. All merely human values, which weigh things heavenly toward what may appear to be favorable or the end of the scale, really it's already been judged. Jesus has died on the cross. He's resurrected. And now we're just waiting. He still has us down here. We have things to do. But what should constantly be on our minds, in our head, that we're going to see Christ one day. If we could somehow store that in our hearts, we would be, we would be better Christians for it. But remember, the Corinthians are also eschatological people themselves. They just have it wrong because they have the spirit too, remember. Paul calls them my brethren. But for them, this meant not so much that the future determined one's life as that one had entered into a new realm. That's what they thought of being all together. That's why they said, we are pneumaticus. We continually walk in the spirit. Everything has happened for the Corinthians. And Paul is saying, no, no, it's not. And he's going to tell them why it hasn't happened. Their theology is wrong. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 tells us, Paul will say, you are already full. You are already rich. 
You have, gained, you have reigned as kings without us. He's poking at them. And indeed, I could wish you did, that we also might reign with you. Paul is trying to bring them in the orbit they're in into his orbit to see things from his eschatological perspective. So it's not a matter of being right and wrong for the apostle. It has to do with one's existence, one's who, whose way of life this should change. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Paul will begin, let a man so consider us as servants. Paul was a brilliant man. But now that he's given his life to Christ, he's a doulos, a slave by choice. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul is going back to his point made earlier regarding himself and Apollos. He said, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? And Paul, Paul doesn't have a beef with Apollos. He never says anything wrong to Apollos because Apollos is not thinking like this. Apollo is going about his business serving the Lord. But ministers, Paul says, through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward. When will that reward happen? When they get to heaven. According to his own labor. A quick point there's plenty of ways to work for the Lord, especially at church. We're always needing people to serve. That's going to be a reward when you get to heaven. Paul says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Now, in some ways, Paul and Apollos, they understood that they were working for the Corinthians that they are leaders first for God. They work for God first. So you Corinthians ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, let a man so consider us as servants. That word service is hipparetes. It means under power, under roar. You're in the bottom of the ship. I don't know. I used to watch that Ben-Hur movie all the time. First time I seen it, what it meant. And it's all those men in the bottom of the ship rowing, being whipped to row faster and continuous, continuously rowing. I think it, was it 300 that they have under rowers in that ship? I think it was 300, telling on myself. Well, they were in the bottom and they were rowing. And, and when they would stop rowing, they found the whip that was on their backs. So it was constantly rowing. That's what Paul says he is. Let a man so consider us. He said, don't consider me as, as a, 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 a person who's seen Jesus Christ and I, I have all of this knowledge and I, I'm doing all these other things. He said, no. When you think of Paul the apostle, think of me as a servant of Christ. And then he goes to a steward, Okonomos, the manager of a household, over household affairs, often it would be a slave. 
who was put in charge. He says, and stewards of the mysteries of God, a secret imparted only to the initiated. A secret imparted only to the initiated. That means you were walking in this world and you were blind and you were just going about your daily affairs and doing everything. And all of a sudden, (laughs) the Holy Spirit whispered in your ear and it went to your heart about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Only that way a person will know. You can go to church just because your parents went to church. It's the right thing to do to go to church on Sunday. But if he hasn't whispered to you in your ear what's really the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're a goat, a blind goat in a hailstone. Those are the mystery of God made known to the initiated. That tells you, and I know you don't want to believe it, but that tells me God just doesn't whisper in everybody's ear, not the message of salvation, until he does, you will do what you do, walk through this life and think you're doing fine. We are blessed that he whispered to us. Verse 2 says, moreover, it is required, since he did speak to me in stewards, that one be found faithful, that they can be trustworthy where the Lord has placed them. Are you faithful in your ministry? Are you faithful what God has called you to do and be? It doesn't matter to Jesus Christ. It matters to a lot of us. But it doesn't matter to Jesus Christ how big the church is. It doesn't matter to Jesus if you work on a garbage truck. You're working If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. That tells me that. It doesn't matter of any of those things, what job you have, it only matters to Jesus, and he's the one that counts. He's the one died for our sins, if you are being faithful. That's not hard. In some ways, I see where it can be because, hey, you're faithful, I'm getting up, I'm going to work every day, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching the word, I'm teaching my children, I'm doing those things every day. And I only have a handful of people in the church. That's what uh, Jeremiah's beef was. Lord, I'm preaching, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and not many people are being saved. And God tells him, that doesn't matter, Jeremiah. I pulled the lever on that salvation, you just be faithful to me. And it just changed his life, and it's changed my life. As long as I'm faithful to the Lord, that's the only thing that matters. The world defines success in a a many of different ways. How much money do you have? How big of a house do you have? What kind of car do you drive? What, what, What college degree? What university did you come from? That's all, and those things are okay, but don't get them twisted. Those are worldly wisdoms. God wants to know what counts. Now, if you want to know what counts, I'm going to tell you what counts. Do you know Jesus Christ? And not up here. It doesn't count up here. You've got to know him in your heart. And then when you know him in your heart, you begin to walk differently in all of those things. And that's what Paul is telling the church of Corinth. He's saying, I know you guys are born again. I was here when it happened. 
but you're walking like unbelievers, and there's something wrong with that. Verse 3, he goes on to say, but with me, and I love this line, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Boy, if we could ever really put that into our heart. That word judge is a crino, and it doesn't mean that you've given a verdict, but it means that every time you see Victor, you're judging him. Well, he doesn't talk like a pastor. He doesn't walk like a pastor. He doesn't do this, and he doesn't do that. Paul says, it doesn't matter to me. Not that y'all do that. I'm just using me as an example. Paul is saying, I care not the least. But really, Paul is kind of fibbing a little bit because he has a bone to pick with him. He says, by you or by a human court, that should be our attitude. I went to, uh, we went, no, I went Friday to my nephew's, uh, he's in a class and he's in a class because he got into some trouble. So he's worked his way through this program at Gwinnett Justice Center. And I don't like Gwinnett Justice Center. I'm sure Gwinnett Justice Center is a fine place if you wasn't doing the things I would do. But every time I went in there, I was going to court. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a believer now. And I'm going in with my mom and my two sisters and Frankie and Stephen. And, and Viv said, I wish you would go with him because he's doing so good. And he just needs to be encouraged. So I'm standing beside Stephen Caleb and we go in there. And everybody, when they would get up to speak, all that it was, and I shouldn't have been too surprised because they had to be unbelievers because they was only, oh, this course really helped me and this and that. And it was all about man's wisdom. And Stephen got up and Stephen says, when I was in jail for, the, for my 17 months, he said, I didn't know what to do. He said, when I got home, I had all these programs and all these classes, or drug classes I had to go through and all these things. And he said, the only way I made it, and he pointed to his family, he said, is because of my family. He said, there's many times I wanted to stop because after sitting in jail 24 hours a day for 18 months, and then getting a job and working and all these things because taking a drug test every day, going to uh, do community service every day, and they still want you to meet your drug classes? He says, most of these people you see here, they won't, they won't do it because they don't have a good family. He says, but my family, that's the only reason I made it. It's a good course, but I just want to tell them thank you. And my point is, Viv, his mom, you need that undergirding. You need that. Jesus is looking out for Stephen right now, and he doesn't even know it. And I would be so blessed if Stephen gives his life to the Lord. He's, he's headed the right way. But moms, that's what you guys are for. Verse 3, in fact, I do not even judge myself, Paul says, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. The very fact that Paul mentions this reveals that he thought something about it. He's saying his conscience is clear, but that doesn't acquit him with God. 
The reason Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitfully and wickedly, how can you know it? And so Paul says, I'm not even going to judge myself. I don't think I have did anything wrong, but maybe I have, but we'll let the Lord handle it. He says in verse 5, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light. That word light is for tizzo, and it refers literally to shining a light on something. That's what the word of God should do. Shine a light on our hearts, dividing between soul and spirit, letting us know, you said that maybe too harshly. You need to go back and straighten it out. You shouldn't have did what you did. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. Paul goes on to say, the hidden things of darkness and reveals the counsel of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul is not saying that they are not made, they shouldn't judge. Because in chapter 5, 12, and in chapter 6, 5, Paul is telling them they should judge. So he's not saying that. He's saying not to judge unto condemnation. If you know people are unbelievers, you shouldn't judge them anyway. They're doing what they unbelievers do. Paul says, let the judgment start in the house of the Lord. The kind of judgment that must cease are those they are currently making against Paul, against his ministry, judgment that reflect a lack of genuine eschatological perspective. Such judgment are before the appointed time, Paul says, when the Lord, the master of the household, will himself come down and, the, and deliver the verdict. Verse six, now these brethren, now these brethren I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. I've given you these analogies for your benefit that you may learn in us our lifestyle, not to think, think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, because we can, we can get puffed up pretty quick, on behalf of one against another. He's saying that you, the Corinthian church, should not be puffed up. And that word comes from a, a fish that is blowed up. And that looks funny. So that looks funny when we're puffed up. But just follow myself and Apollos. He said, you shouldn't be following us anyway because we're mere humans. Paul is about to give the reason and he's going to use rhetoric why those who are puffed up shouldn't be. They're out of place. And here he goes. For who makes you differ from another? Who, who does that? Who gave you that smart mind? Who gave you that intellect? The Lord did. He uses the word uh, diacrino, and it literally means separating people who are in a fight. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have hmm, that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, anytime we are prideful, and I know that never happens to you guys, it reflects a lack of proper perspective, a lack of gratitude. And I know that 
that it's because of the fall. The fall has given us all too high a view of ourself, and it's given us a low view of others. Instead of offering humble thanksgiving for the gifts that God gives us, the Corinthians have allowed the gifts to become a sign of status and a source of decision. Remember, they're on this little coast almost, and all the people that get on the other side has to come by boat, ship, and so they're meeting all different types of people. And the only reason they are speaking in tongues is God knew that a lot of people would be coming that way. So God says, I'm going to give you this gift of tongues so that when the unbeliever walks into the fellowship, they hear their language. And they're going to say, man, how, how, how can they speak my language? And that gets them concerned. That gives them uh, to, to maybe they will go and inquire about God. But the Corinthians, because they have that gift of speaking in tongues, they have blowed themselves up thinking they have it all. And that's not true. Paul says, for who makes you differ from another, exalting yourself over another? Who, I'm going to read this in English, and this is the, what, how it reads. Who in the world do you think you are anyway? What kind of self-delusion is it that allows you to put yourself in a position to judge another person's servant? That's ridiculous. If I had servants and you judged them, I'd say, hey, mind your own business. And that's really what he's saying. Mind your own business. Pick your row of peas. If the first question marks the Corinthians' conceit as presumptuous, and it is, the second marks their ungratefulness because they're ungrateful. This is, an, this is an invitation for us to experience one of those rare, unregarded moments of total honesty. That's why the Holy Spirit put that verse here. Where in the presence of an eternal God, we recognize that everything, everything we have is absolutely a gift from God, all of grace. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. And if we've experienced grace, we should live from that posture of unbounded gratitude. We should be gracious that God has saved us, gracious that we are serving in the church, gracious that he would allow us to. The Corinthians think of themselves as especially gifted with the spirit and wisdom, thinking that, that, gi that gives them the right to judge another. But it reflects a total misunderstanding of grace and frankly, miss the humility of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Paul starts in verse eight, he will start a series of, of antithesis between them and himself. And he's trying, he's really trying to shame them into getting into his orbit. He turns to irony to do this, to see their folly, hopefully, in their boasting. In verse, verse eight, he'll say, you are already full. And remember, he's speaking of the Corinthians. You are already full. You are already rich. He's emphasizing the folly. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign. Because if you are reigning, 
That meant that I was also reigning, that we also might reign with you. It makes me think of that real cool church who thought they had it together in the book of Revelations. Revelations 3.17, Paul says, the Laodiceans, because you say, you say, and it doesn't count when we say, it's what God says. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. These three verbs here, have no need, it attacks not their pride in general, but specifically their view of spirituality, which reflects an over-realized eschatology. Paul's perspective, which he shares with the rest of the New Testament, is one of already, stick with me, already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. There is one already, and it's happened. Jesus Christ has been crucified. He was in the grave for three days. He's rose. We're, we're already, but not yet. We still have things to do down here. The Corinthians... Having received the Spirit, Paul says, you are believers. They think they have already arrived. That's the issue they're having, Paul is having with these Corinthians, for them spiritually. Their spirituality means to have been transported into a whole new sphere of existence where they are already above everyone else. They think that they're living in the new age. These Corinthians do. That's why they think they can do what they're doing in the flesh, and it's okay. And Paul says, no, your eschatology is wrong. That's true. It's true that Jesus has hit the home run, as I said before. It's been hit. We win the game if you're on his team. It's true, it's true he's ran around the bases. The only thing that is, doesn't add up yet, the scoreboard hasn't changed one of those depleted, defected scoreboards. While I'm watching the NBA playoffs, if my team hits the point, I'm saying, they didn't give him, that was a three, they gave him a two. I, I check the scoreboard off all the time. Well, that's what's happened. Jesus has hit the home run. Things have changed. The scoreboard has changed, but not for us down here. Paul says, we're still treated as being moronic. We're still treated as being the scum of the earth. But just hang in there. That scoreboard will reflect who we are soon. People still talk about us. You, the only reason you go to church on Wednesday is because you don't have anything to do. Maybe. Say what you want. The only reason you go to church on Sunday is because you, your family used to go and, and you think you need to go. If that's what you think about it, that's okay. I know, and I told you guys, if you know that the scoreboard hasn't changed, it shouldn't bother you what people say. We know we win. He's hit the home run. We'll just continue to let them think until they see us fly away, hopefully. Or we don't make that and Jesus calls us up from the grave. But we've won the game. And Paul, play, he begins to play along with them because once again, their eschatology is wrong. Paul says, you are already full. You are already rich. These are the Corinthians. You have reigned as kings without us. 
You have set sail on your reign, Paul is saying. Notice Paul's language here is totally eschatological, which view the saints share in the reign at the end, but not themselves becoming kings anyway. Paul always focused on the messianic reign. His whole life was about, I'm just down here to make it. Lord, I'm your slave. Whatever you call me to do, I will do it because I know my time is short down here. I've told you guys before, what, what is, well, for a 15-year-old or maybe a 21-year-old, 70 years is a long time. But believe me, when you're 52, close to 53, 70 years <laughs> is very short. Time flies. And Paul knows it, and Paul is telling this First Corinthians church, it does not matter. You might not have seen the scoreboard change yet, but I'm telling you, Jesus has resurrected. This game is at least halfway over. Just keep your eyes on him. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but you've won the game. I could see we, if we walk crookedly because the scripture tells us you might win the game. You might. Mm -mm. Jesus tells us we have won the game. So all you got to do is just hold on till time is up. That's what the Corinthians have failed to do. But the Corinthians are living as if they were already reigning. And it doesn't matter how they live. That's why Paul tells them to hold up. He tells them in verse 9. Well, I want to say this because uh, Paul is going to burst their bubble. And this is what Jesus said. In the world, you will have tribulation. This is a reality. Does it look like we're reigning? That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. He uses those that are condemned to die in the arena. He says in verse 9, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. When the generals would win a battle, they'd march into the city, everybody with their flowers and throwing branches of flowers on them and everything. And at the last of the procession was the captive. And they were captive, but they were on their way to the arena to be a movie for someone who watches men get beat down and eaten up by animals and all those things. That's what, that's what was going to happen to them. And Paul says, that's who I am. And the Holy Spirit is saying, that's who we should be. So what if someone does me wrong? So what if I feel like I've been cheated. So what if I realize that I didn't get the job because of some past behavior? Paul is saying, so what? The scoreboard does not reflect the game score. Paul continues to go after him on verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Reminds me of Matthew 20, 
26, 27, Jesus says, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, among my team, that you proclaim your own, so when it happens, it shouldn't really affect you much. Let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Paul is saying the exact things Jesus said, his hero. The Corinthians, they're prideful. And they were even embarrassed of Paul because they really didn't think he was a first-class apostle. But he was the one that birthed them. So Paul continues. He says, verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak. Paul came to them in weakness. They didn't like that. They didn't like it because he didn't speak well. They didn't like it because he told them how it was. They don't like him. But you are strong. You are distinguished. But we are dishonored. As believers... The world sees us as buffoons, fools, wasting our time. They can go on and make fun. We know how the game will end. Remember, the majority of the Corinthians are not among the wise anyway. They're not among the powerful or they're not among the honored, but they are acting like it. They have a theological bent. They have a problem with the glory. They think they should be receiving glory right now. And Jesus has told us, Peter told us, anytime we suffer for what is, and you've done something right, Christ's glory abides on you. I'm reminded of the hymn that we sang as little boys and little girls. The deacons would sing it every time before church would start. And the verses went, must Jesus bear the cross alone? And all the world go free. No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. I'm reminded of Mama Nellie cooking dinner for all of us through the week while Daddy's out working. Papa Tim is out uh, at the uh, railroad putting, picking up uh, those big uh, uh, six by eights, whatever there was. Uh, what, what do you call it? Railroad cross tires. Work like a dog, dig those things. But every Monday, when he would come in, he'd call the family because we lived next door. He'd call the family over and he would begin to sing hymns and he would tell us the goodness of God. And I would look at Papa Tim, I say, He doesn't look so good. But Papa Tim knew that this life is short. And he was going to live a life that was well-pleasing to God. And that's what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand. The Corinthians must finally, they finally yield to that, which alone is the Christian theology of the cross. And they must stop disregarding Paul's apostleship. Verse 11 and 13, Paul begins to talk to them straight. He, he gives up the analogy sequence and all that. He tells them, to, to the present hour. And he, what he's really doing, he's contradicting. He's contrasting with the, uh, with the Corinthians 
and a true Christian, he said, to this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. Now, is that happening to you guys, the Corinthians? That's what Paul is saying. Is that happening to you? Because it's happening to me. Because I'm living a life that's well-pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's what he can say. Hebrews 11, 33 through 38 tells us, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection, all because of Jesus Christ. Still others had trials of mocking and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Victor, has that happened to you? I tell you, in this life, in America, in this life, we play peewee ball. I don't care what you've been through. You haven't been through this. And I'm not minimizing the challenges and the trials we go through. But this is major league right here. We play peewee ball. We should be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And I think that's how Jesus sees it. He says, they wandered in deserts and mountains and deeds and caves of the earth. All of that because they knew the scoreboard did not reflect the real score. They knew they won the game and they were just waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ to call them home. That's how you live a holy life. That's how you live a godly life. He says in verse 15, for though you might have, and Paul shows his heart now, these people, has, they've turned sideways against Paul, and Paul is still loving them, just as Jesus would do. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, that word instructors, I love it, pedagogos. And when I looked up the, the Greek word, I said, I've heard this word before. I've heard this word before. And the pedagogos, he was not a teacher, but highly, he was a highly valued uh, guardian. Uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, 1900, I'll go back that far, when they had black slaves and all that, they would take one of the black slaves and they would make him, if he had any kind of knowledge and, and he was trustworthy, he would go in the house and they would make him their pedagogos. And his job was to take the, the school children to school, make sure they got to school, and then was there to pick them up and bring them back home. 
but he was a firm disciplinarian. So if they started doing anything, he had the right to pop them, whip them, do all those things and bring them back home, the pedagogos. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3.24. He uses that example. He says, therefore, the law was our pedagogos. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. I got tired of the law saying, you're doing something wrong. You're doing that wrong. Stop doing this. When you couldn't, you couldn't stop. And it was the law that was our tutor, our pedagogos. And he, the law, Jesus says, Paul says, brings us to Christ. I can't do it. I can't help but being what I am. And the law reminds me every day. So I go to Jesus who sets me free. Paul knows this. He says, you might have 10,000 pedagogos because they didn't have a heart for the children, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Wow. Paul, that, that tells you what kind of man Paul was because the theologians still say today, we don't know if Paul really met Jesus Christ even when they said uh, he came to him because Paul never puts any of Jesus' uh, vocabulary in his epistles. That's the reason they say we, we, we don't know if he met, ever met Jesus Christ. But all through his epistles, even though he doesn't say things that Jesus said, it means the same thing. And so they give Paul a hard time. Verse 16, Paul says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. That should show you that Paul met Jesus Christ right there. Paul says, listen to me and then imitate me. That shouldn't scare us. That should charge us up to be better Christians. The only reason Paul could say, imitate me, he knew he was in Christ. He knew Christ was for him. He knew this thing called life was coming to an end, and he knew he was going to stand in front of Jesus one day. The same Jesus who bled and died for him. The same Jesus who they put the crown of thorns on his brow. The same Jesus who they whipped with the kind of nine tails. He was going to have to stand in front of him someday. And he says, no matter what happens to me on this planet, on the earth, it's worth it. It's worth it. I want to see him and I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I told you guys last week, you might not think it matters now because salva salvation is not on the line right now for these Corinthians. I'll just spit it out today. I feel a little bold. Salvation is not on the line when Paul wrote that to the first Corinthians. But as you read it, as you read the epistle, it says, but. If you continue to walk like unbelievers, if your lifestyle is like unbelievers, well, that depicts who you are. And that's the warning for all of us.
That's the warning for every one of us. Do we know Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ I know, changes your life. That's what he does. And that's what Paul is pleading for these Corinthians. He says, yeah, y'all, I know you, you guys are babies now. And so I can still get away with feeding you milk, even though by now you should be eating solid food. But God is patient. God is loving. He's long-suffering, not wanting anyone to die and go to hell. So Paul is telling them, and he's told the Corinthians this. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Watch me. He says, verse 17, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's concern from beginning to end is the gospel. Every time he would preach, I'm sure he would think the reason he's up here is because of Jesus Christ. I seen him. I was taught by him for three and a half years. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. That's the biggest problem. Watching a family, especially with the dad and the mom in the home, and we're telling them to go to church, if we will even go. And you might go, but then when you get home, they watch you. They imitate your life. And therefore, if you're not living a godly life, it casts dispersions on Jesus Christ. He must not have the power. He doesn't have power in dad's life. He doesn't have power in mom's life. That's what Paul is saying. And you can't continue to live that way. Paul is making it known. And, and those are grace right there. You're babes in Christ right now. It's okay if you mess your pants right now. You're only 18 months. That's okay. But when you're 10 years old and still messing your pants, something is wrong. And that's what Paul is warning these people, the Corinthians. He says, imitate me. That's a bold statement. But that should make us hungry to live a holy life. To, to say, Jesus, not my will, your will be done. No matter how much I want something, I, I, I want something, Lord, more than that, I want to please you. You've given your life for me. You love me more than anyone could ever love me. So I'm going to live for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is so gracious. And the worship team can come up. God is so gracious. When I think about, we're, we're, by, by the way, if you didn't know, we're studying the book of Ezra, a great book on Wednesday night. Come out, come out to that. Uh, and this is why I'm about to say what I'm going to say because we're studying the book of Ezra. Ezra is a book of what, Jonathan? <laughs> I got you that time. Ezra is a book of coming back because I can't think of the word. But these, the Jews have been in Babylon for 70 years. 
And only a smidge and a little little number came back to Jerusalem. And it was only because God stirred their hearts. Salvation begins and ends with God. That should be in the scriptures, but it is in it from Genesis to Revelation. Don't Abraham would be in hell right now for some of the things he did. Am I right or wrong? All of the saints that we look up to would be in hell for some of the things they did. But God's grace is sufficient, and God is calling them back from Babylon, the Israelites. He put it in their hearts to come back, just like salvation. So God is long-suffering. God, it's almost, I got the picture, it's almost my right hand is God, and this is his hand of grace and his hand of mercy and his hand of long-suffering, but right here is time. And God is giving you grace. He's long-suffering. He's giving you grace. He's giving you grace, but there's a wall there. But you never turn, and you hit that wall. God has been calling you all this time, and you die, and you you go to hell. That's the God I serve. That's the God who's merciful. That's why I understand when he says, it's not my will that anyone perish. He's full of grace. That's what Paul is telling him. He's full of mercy. He's long-suffering. But there comes a time when time runs out, and that's the end. And that's why he's telling the church of Corinthians, you're babes right now, but you've got to get your act together. Because Jesus Christ not only saved you, He gives you the power to live holy lives. He gives you the power to do it. We serve a holy God. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God. You are a holy God. You are a God that's full of grace and mercy. Paul tells these Corinthians, you're backbiting, you're, 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 you're talking about people, you, you, you're, you think you're better than people and all these things, and yet they're believers. And yet, I'm sure you said, ooh, Jesus is in, in there and said, ooh, man, that doesn't feel good. I, I can't be at home in this person's body. He hasn't, she hasn't made me holy. And I've given them everything for them to be holy. Lord, I thank you that in this day and age, I thank you that I'm in the minor leagues. I haven't suffered to the shedding of blood. I haven't suffered to any of the things we hear in Hebrews. It's amazing that they would go through that and still smile. But they knew Jesus Christ had hit the home run. They knew they had won the game. The scoreboard just doesn't reflect it yet. Lord, please give us a heart set to remember that we've won the game. We don't need to impress anyone. If God be for me, who can be against me? Let them say what they might say. 
I've got to stand in front of you one day. And you've did too much for me to live any kind of way, Lord. I love you. I pray for everyone here in this room, those that might be watching online, that you would reveal your love to us even more, that you would remind us. That's what you told the church of Laodicea, uh, uh, Ephesus. You told them to remember your first love. And that's what we need to do sometimes. Remember our first love and go back to it. And your grace is sufficient. Your grace is there. And you take us back as we're learning in Ezra, as we learn with the prodigal, as you just said, you're a good God. May we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.